The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson, and today we have the wonderful opportunity to welcome the president and academic dean of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Sam Waldron. Dr. Waldron, welcome to the podcast today. It's great to be here, brother. Dr. Waldron, we're going to be talking about your book, The Crux of the Free Offer of the Gospel. And to start us off, in the introduction of your book, you mention that the free offer of the gospel must be a well-meant offer. Can you tell our listeners what this means and why it must be so? Yeah, uh, that's that's why it's called The Crux of the Free Offer, because I think the idea of it's being well meant is is important and uh, vital to what is meant by the free offer. And there's a number of reasons why uh, I, I say that so confidently. First of all, uh, the language itself of free offer uh, makes really clear that you have something that's that is being uh, authentically, sincerely uh, offered to people. Of course, it's more than an offer. It's a command. It's a demand. But it is but it is a, a command or a demand uh, to do something that will be of great benefit to yourself. And the language of it being free and the language of it being an offer uh, speaks to its being well-met, to its being sincere. Um, then uh, there are a number of other reasons why I think well-met offer is the right way to talk about this. In my book, I, I quote John Kelvin, or one little snippet of John Kelvin, you could go on at great length, who makes clear that the free offer of the gospel is uh, expression of God's uh, a, a perceptive will uh, that men should believe the gospel and be saved. Oh, but one of the most important reasons to say that is the people that oppose the free offer of the gospel oppose it. Uh, and I'm talking here about the classic opposition of the Protestant Reformed churches. They oppose it uh, precisely because they do understand that free offer means well-meant offer. The whole controversy uh, over with the Christian Reformed churches back in 1923 and 24, when the Protestant Reformed left, was over the whole issue of the free offer and the rejection of the free offer by the Protestant Reformed because they understood that it meant a well-met offer, uh, because they understood that it meant common grace, that is to say, a gracious or benevolent attitude of God towards the non-elect, and, and this they completely rejected. And so uh, uh, the people that oppose it, um, and I quote uh, Engels in my book, make clear that what they oppose about the free offer is that it's well-met. That's the implication. Another, I think, important reason to uh, talk about this is the is the fact that when, uh, though the canons of Dort don't use the language of free offer, as I recall, they do talk about a sincere offer from God, authentically given to men, uh, and and so in the first the kind of classic 
a summary of the five points of Calvinism, the canons of Dort, you have a clear assertion of a well-meant offer of the gospel, of a sincere offer on God's part. And then as well, uh, I think the confession makes this really clear. Uh, And in a couple of different ways, the 1689 Baptist Confession, I think, underscores that by free offer is meant a well-meant offer, that that, those two things go together. Uh, The first first thing that uh, points in that direction is that the same confession uh, that in chapter 7 asserts a free offer asserts in, uh, uh, I believe it's chapter 14 in the chapter on faith, uh, the, the, the common grace of God. And so uh, the same confession that asserts free offer asserts the other thing that the enemies of the free offer reject, and that's common grace. Um, but one of the things I noticed as I was writing my book, which is really interesting to me, is the proof text that the confession brings forward. You look at the original proof text uh, for that are cited under under uh, the in chapter seven with regard to the free offer of the gospel. They cite John three sixteen, which whether you agree with their that the particular uh, interpretation of John three sixteen that's being assumed by the framers of the confession, uh, it's clear then that the free offer is looked at as an expression of the love of God for the world. And, and therefore, uh, must be a well-meant offer. That is to say, it's an expression of, of, uh, of the love of God. Uh, and they cite John 3.16 to support it. And then, uh, uh, finally, uh, I, I quote Joel Beakey and, and Mark, uh, Joel Beakey in his, uh, book, Puritan Theology. And he says very clearly that, uh, in a, I think I'll actually uh, give you the quotation from the book. He says very clearly in uh, in Puritan theology, <clears throat> the Puritans represented God as lovingly and sincerely calling sinners to him. That's page 508. And in that context, it's perfectly clear that he means all sinners without exception. All, all those who hear the gospel are being lovingly and sincerely invited to Christ. So those are some of the reasons why I say that free offer uh, assumes and means well-meant offer. Uh, John 5.34 reads, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. You give uh, much attention to this verse in your book. What does John 5.34 teach us about the free offer of the gospel? Well, um, I'm certain that other texts uh, could be used as kind of a classic text. I suppose that my attention to this text is really born out of the fact that it seemed to me to express as well or better than any other text, uh, uh, or, or as well uh, and more explicitly or clearly than any other text, the free offer of the gospel. And, and let me explain why. Uh, Jesus is here talking about the testimony of John the Baptist and and his reiteration of that uh, and his and John's testimony to Jesus as the Savior. Um, and that's the theme here. So we have virtually here um, 
a reference to the to the gospel witness with regard to Jesus Christ as the Savior of men. And then uh, I think what's most explicit and pointed here is the purpose that Jesus expresses for citing the testimony of John the Baptist to himself. Um, and, and that is that he says these things to his hearers so that they might be saved. Now, here is an expression of will, a kind of intention. And uh, uh, it's, it's a purpose clause. Now, we need to be careful here because we certainly want and we're going to talk about the important distinction between decretive and perceptive will. But we have here an expression then of, of the will of the Savior uh, in, in saying these things. He says, I say these things so that you may be saved. And, and this is a perfectly general uh, reference to all those who are, are in his presence and hearing it at that time. Another reason why John 5.34 seems so significant to me is that John 5.34 uh, uh, is in the context of Jesus addressing men that clearly are not all his disciples. And he even says things in this context that indicate that these men would never become his disciples. I mean, it's be unlikely to think that Jesus could say these things generally to a crowd and that every last member of that crowd to that day happened to be among his elect. But um, the fact of the matter is that in the context, he makes clear that these men are not going to, uh, some of these men are not going to receive uh, his word and be saved. Uh, He's going to go on to say uh, in verse 43, uh, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And this seems to have fairly pointed reference to the false messiahs and false prophets that are going to come uh, in the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. So many of these people here, I'm sure not all of them, but many of these people here uh, are not among his disciples. And Jesus doesn't even think of them as eventually being among those who are going to be saved among his elect. He thinks of them uh, in this very context as uh, receiving the false false messiahs and among that Jewish nation upon whom the wrath of God's going to come to the uttermost. And yet, and yet he says, I say these things to you that you may be saved. So these are the recipients of the passage. The other thing that seems really significant to me about John 5.34 is the fact that uh, in this passage, you have a, a reference uh, to the uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ as the author of these sentiments. I say of these things to you. So you have the theme of uh, these things, the testimony of John the Baptist and his father to Jesus. You have the purpose so that they might be saved. You have uh, uh, the recipients. Uh, the you here includes all of his audience, including men who apparently are never going to believe in him. Uh, and then you have the author, I say these things that you may be saved. Now, here uh, here we come to one of the primary evasions or ways of avoiding the implication of this passage. Um, and 
And that is that some, some Calvinists being nervous about the implications of this passage and perhaps not thinking the whole thing through, or maybe just having uh, still some uh, tendencies to too high a Calvinism uh, in their hearts, actually want to say, well, Jesus is just saying these things as a man. He's just saying these things as a man. He's not saying them as God. And therefore, this is these are only as human sentiments. So um, I think if you think through that kind of, that kind of exegesis and explanation of the passage, there are, are really a, a, a ton of problems with them. This, of course, it is possible that Jesus sometimes speaks uh, out of his human nature. Uh, the Bible describes him with reference to his uh, human nature when it says that he grew in wisdom. The Bible describes him with reference to his human nature when he, when he says that he does not know the day of his own return in Matthew 24, 36. So it's not to be denied that Christ someplace speaks out of his human nature. But with regard to what is said here and the context of the, in which it is said, I just don't think that explanation makes any sense. It leads in the first place to the notion that, uh, that uh, the man Jesus loves these people and wants them saved but his father in heaven doesn't and and that kind of uh that kind of distinction between how the father feels if i can use the terminology how the how the father's attitude is towards men and how the how is how jesus attitude men creates a disjunction that is i think almost impossible to know how to deal with uh, so, so Jesus wants them to be saved, but that's only Jesus. It's not God. Well, what in the world are we supposed to say about that? But there's an even greater problem uh, than that, and it's the context of the Gospel of John. Throughout the Gospel of John, uh, the the message we have here uh, is uh, uh, is that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the note upon which the gospel begins. That's the note upon which Thomas is going to sum it up when he addresses Christ as my Lord and my God in John 20. So the whole emphasis of the gospel of John is on Jesus' uh, godhood, on Jesus as God. So it would really be unexpected with that total emphasis throughout the gospel of John if we come here and say, well, but in this place, he's speaking as a man. Really? Uh, but that goes along with another emphasis uh, in, uh, in, the, in the gospel that we have to deal with. And, and, and it's really, I think, expressed in John 14, uh, <clears throat> where, um, uh, let's see if I can come up the passage. Um, yeah, John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. And so Jesus here is saying, uh, going beyond just saying that he is God the Son, but he's also saying that he's God the Word. Of course, that's the actual peculiar uh, way of describing him that you have there 
in John 1, 1 and following. He's the word of God. And therefore, the whole theme of this particular gospel is that he is the expression uh, and the revelation of God to men. But we're supposed to believe in John 5, 34, when he says, I say these things to you that to you that you may be saved, that he's not that revelation of God to men. But here he's just speaking as a man. I think the idea in the exegesis that follows that tack to try to avoid the implications of the passage is really uh, very, very difficult, impossible, I think. Let's transition now to an important distinction that you make in your book, and you even alluded to earlier, and that is the distinction between the perceptive and decretive will of God. Can you define these terms and explain how they relate to the free offer? Sure. Yeah, I think this is really important. And in fact, I think it's so important that I think the distinction between God's preceptive will and decretive will lies at the foundation of sound theology. It really lies at the foundation of uh, our ability to explain and to understand Christianity itself. So the distinction between perceptive will and decretive will, I don't think you can overstate how important it is. Okay, So let me explain it. Uh, first of all, let me just explain the terminology we just used. Preceptive will is God's will of precept. It is what he wills for us to do. It is what he commands us to do by his law and precepts. Um, uh, it's the Ten Commandments. It's also uh, the command, the gospel, the terms of the gospel, the commands to repent and believe. All these things are, are parts of God's preceptive will. Now, God's decretive will uh, is his will of decree. And here I'm just accepting the idea that God's decree, God's eternal decree is his most holy, wise counsel by which he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. Okay. And so when we talk about God's decretive will, we're talking about uh, the fact that uh, God's plan encompasses everything, that everything falls out according to God's plan uh, for the universe, that there are no, uh, what was Sproul's famous comment, that there are no maverick molecules, okay? And and that's what we mean by God's decretive will. Now, other terminology has been used, but um, before I go to it, let me just say that I, I think the Bible very clearly teaches uh, this whole matter, of uh, a distinction between God's preceptive and decretive will, uh, perhaps not with the very terms, but the ideas are clearly present. And the classic text is John 50, 20. I mean, sorry, pardon me, Genesis 50, 20, uh, where Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, here I think we see the paradox of... Uh, of God's uh, preceptive and decretive will. Uh, the very same event, they're selling uh, Joseph into slavery, was on their part evil, but on God's part good. The same event was both evil and good. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, it was evil in the sense that it was a violation of God's perceptive will. The standard of good and evil is God's perceptive will. And their intentions violated that standard. And so uh, when they sold uh, Joseph into slavery, they were meaning and doing evil. But that very same event was also in the plan of God. Uh, It was in the plan of God because he meant it in his purposes and the inscrutable mysteries of his providence for good. And so the same event was a violation of God's perceptive will, but a fulfillment of God's decretive will. This is the kind of paradox that the scripture requires us to hold if we're going to be fully scriptural, I think. Now, there are other terms that are used uh, with regard to this whole matter of God's perceptive and decretive will. Perhaps more familiar is the distinction between God's secret will, which is a reference to God's decretive will, and his revealed will, which is a reference to his uh, His perceptive will. And, um, you know, I think the Bible justifies language like this, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that are uh, are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law, but that's preceded by Moses saying, uh, but the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so there is a distinction between God's secret will and his revealed will. And I think it amounts to, in, in most theologians, to the same distinction we're talking about with regard to perceptive and decretive will. Um, This has been put in other ways. Um, I have a man I respect who talked about the fact that um, these two things are are two ways in which God is sovereign. He's sovereign over morality. That's his perceptive will. He's also sovereign over reality. That's his decretive will. Now, I think this distinction is really important because uh, if you attempt to uh, take all the biblical references to God's will and the different words that are used for it, commands, precepts, counsels, purposes, um, and, and there are a number of different biblical terms, and you try to fit them into one of these, uh, just, just one of these two categories, you're going to be twisting scripture far and wide. It's simply absolutely necessary when you come to any reference to the will of God in scripture, first of all, to decide, is this a reference to his perceptive will or his decretive will? A lot of times, of course, that decision is not hard to make. Uh, when uh, when uh, Paul talks about, uh, ask the question, who has resisted his will? In Romans chapter 9, it's clearly a reference to God's decretive will. Um, when it's, uh, when, uh, in other places, the will of God is described like this, uh, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, uh, though, uh, uh, that seems to have, have reference to God's preceptive will, primarily at least. And in many other passages, that uh, just can't, uh, that if you try to fit them into the decretive will category, just don't fit. 
I talk about one passage in particular in my book when we, uh, oh, that is, I think, deserving of special attention. And that is um, um, the, uh, the language of Luke, uh, Luke 730, um, where um, we read, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. This is an unusual text because usually uh, the term used here, uh, translated purpose, is uh, is a, a word, a boulain is the Greek, that uh, refers to God's decretive will. But it can't uh, refer to that here because God's uh, decretive will is never rejected, is always fulfilled by men. But here, uh, that, that strong word, God's purpose or intention, is used with reference to God's perceptive will. Now, I just challenge anyone, and I've done it, I've done some of it in my book, just by the word study of the New Testament usages uh, of the different words for will. I challenge anyone to go through the Bible and not see that there are at least these two dimensions of God's will, God's preceptive will and God's decretive will. And that we have to have a distinction like that to do, to, to do justice to the scriptures, to exegete the scriptures. Uh, our next question for you is, can you attempt to explain the balance slash tension between God's earnest desire for the salvation of every man and God's hatred and his wrath upon sinners? <laughs> well, let, let me first of all say that we're getting into some mysteries here. That And one of, you know, one of the essentials of my position is the acceptance of mystery in Scripture. I don't believe that man's reason is the measure of all things. And so I accept the fact that a revelation from God, an analogical revelation from God as it must be, um, that uh, there won't be uh, uh, mysteries in Scripture. But I do think there's some things we can say about this uh, and to answer um, uh, the th- those people who say, well, it's clear that the Bible says that God hates certain people, so if he hates certain people, he can't love everybody. Well, it's not quite that simple, my friend, um, uh, because love has various meanings in the scriptures. Uh, I don't always agree with D.A. Carson, but I agree with him here when he talks about the difficult doctrine of the love of God. Um, the fact of the matter is that it's not D.A. Carson, it's the old theologians who came up with certain distinctions with regard to the love of God. They distinguish, for instance, between the love of benevolence and the love of complacency or delight. Um, and I think this helps us to understand uh, what and how we are to preach text uh, like Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, 5, which clearly teach, uh, not that uh, they don't, they do not teach the modern evasion a God hates the sin, loves the sinner. That's not quite what they teach. They actually say that God loves the wicked, which is, an, and they say, Psalm 5, 5, 11, 5, many other texts, that uh, God hates the wicked. Um, and so uh, there's no doubt about the, the, the scriptural assertions with regard to that. But 
what I want to say is uh, that love has various meanings in the scriptures. And I think we have to apply the old distinction between love of benevolence and love of delight uh, to situations like this. Uh, because at other points in scriptures, it's clear that God tells us to love our enemies because he loves his. What are we to make of all this? Well, I think what we're to make of it is to distinguish in the first place between the love of delight and the love of benevolence. Does God have a love of delight for the wicked? No, he doesn't. He does not delight in the wicked, and in that sense, he does not love them. Rather, his soul loathes them. Um, but, um, but then there's something, there's another kind of love besides the love of delight. There's the love of benevolence, love of good will, as uh, it can be translated, the love of good will. And, and this is not, this love is not rooted in, it doesn't reflect upon anything about the sinner. It's a reflection on the goodness of God himself. And it does not talk about the nature characteristic of the wicked. Uh, it does not assume anything about the nature or characteristic of the wicked, like the love of delight does. It assumes, uh, it assumes only that God is full of goodness and kindness, and, and that he is, uh, he is the God, Ezekiel 33 says, uh, does, who does not delight in the death of the wicked. So I think if we understand that love doesn't always refer to the same thing in Scripture, that we we can begin to make more sense of texts uh, that speak of a God's hatred for sinners on the one hand and his desire for their salvation on the other. God God's hatred hatred is really a reflection of his love of delight. God delights in righteousness. How can he how can he delight in sinners? But on the other hand, God's love of benevolence means that he is good and kind. He's not a sadist, and therefore he delights. Uh, uh, he delights when men turn from their wicked ways and live. So I think that's at least some help with regard to this whole thing. And, and this has a practical application to us as people as well, because uh, there are things in the scripture that can't be explained without uh, making a distinction, not only in God with regard to two different dimensions of his love, but in regard to human relationships. On the one hand, God tells us to love our enemies, clearly, uh, Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Uh, he, and he, he tells us not to take vengeance on our enemies uh, as well, Romans 12, 17 to 21. But there are other passages of Scripture that make equally clear that uh, that's not the only perspective or feeling or uh, uh, relation we are to have to the wicked uh, and to our enemies. Uh, because uh, on the other hand, you have that statement of the Old Testament. I think it was the prophet to Hezekiah. No, was it Hezekiah? One of the kings of Israel, anyway. When he asked the, when the prophet asked him, should you love those who hate the Lord? <laughs> the implied answer is no. Uh, the idea is, um, and it's not Hezekiah, it's Jehoshaphat. Who had who had allied, allowed his son to marry one of the the daughters of uh, daughters of Ahab and and really followed things up for the southern kingdom doing that uh, and so uh, the prophet asked Jehoshaphat should you love those who hate the Lord well the uh, obvious implied answer is no 
Uh, so on the one hand, we're to love our enemies, even if they hate the Lord. On the other hand, we're not to love those who hate the Lord. How do we do that? Well, be, by making a distinction between the love of benevolence and the love of delight. That's how we must do it, I think. We are all three pastors and, and preachers and teachers. Um, so this next question gets kind of at the heart of where this doctrine applies to that. So how does the free offer of the gospel influence the way we preach and teach? Well, I want to be careful here because um, people are inconsistent. Uh, there are illustrations of people that I could only call help hyper-Calvinists in their, in their views of these things that obviously manifested a great evangelistic zeal and love, love for men. Um, and, uh, um, and so uh, people are inconsistent, right? On the other hand, doctrine will always out in the end. And because doctrine will always out, um, it's, it's difficult to understand how one can passionately, uh, and freely, uh, call men to salvation, um, and, and do that with evident love, all the time thinking in your mind and heart, um, I'm not sure God actually loves these people or wants them to be saved. I mean, that's a that's a real difficult trick to pull off, don't you think? On the one hand, follow Jesus' example. Plead with men to heed the testimony. Plead with men to believe. And on the other hand, to say, yeah, but my Father in heaven, he isn't quite, he doesn't feel quite the same way about you. <laughs> uh, he's, he really doesn't want you to be saved. Uh, and, and yeah, you're commanded to be saved, but, uh, God doesn't, uh, God really doesn't want that to happen. Um, and there's no, there's no general love of God that is expressed in or, or behind this gospel call. I mean, uh, on the one hand, people are inconsistent. On the other hand, uh, I think you can see how, uh, difficult it would be to pull off that kind of double think, you know, as a preacher. So I also think, and so I think that to preach passionately, freely, uh, and, and really in the end to rightly represent God, who in his perceptive will, uh, does desire men to be saved. Um, uh, you have to, you have to have this doctrine. And I think it, I think it translates into, uh, a lot of other things. This, uh, is going to help us, uh, issue the gospel offer without qualifying ourselves to death, without stuttering, without undermining the offer by other things we say. It allows us to feel then that we really represent God when we express love for sinners. And it delivers us from the tendency. I don't say it's always, it's always going to come out. People are inconsistent. It delivers us from the tendency to the hardness of heart that may seem justified if we have a one-sided emphasis on God's decretive will. So I think it really is something that uh, expresses itself throughout uh, the Christian life in our attitude towards sinners and uh, our attitude towards those that we don't know are elect. 
So those are some of the things that occur to me with regard to this. You uh, answered part of our next question. Uh, how should the biblical concept of the free offer of the gospel motivate and affect our evangelism? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, we need to look at men. I think the Bible encourages us to look at men, not as simply uh, um, probably reprobate, and and it's useless to talk to them, uh, but to look at men as uh, as the as the objects of uh, a general love of God expressed in the free offer of the gospel supported by the unlimited sufficiency of the work of Christ. And I think this ought to uh, uh, help us, motivate us uh, to see in men uh, those who are, are deeply needy and who uh, uh, God, uh, uh, who, over whom we should grieve at the you know, probable end and destiny of their lives uh, if uh, if and unless they don't believe the gospel. Hmm. Well, we have been discussing the free offer of the gospel today with Dr. Sam Waldron. And uh, brother, we want to thank you for your helpful book and taking the time to join the podcast today for this discussion. Yeah, I, I really do hope that the book Crux of the Free Offer gets a wide hearing uh, I know it stirred up some opposition already. I'm not surprised by that at all, but I really do think it's an important and a balancing statement for for uh, those involved in the resurgence, the wonderful resurgence of Reformed doctrine in our day. Hmm. Well, we'll be sure to uh, link to your book in the show notes. Uh, as always, this episode is partnered with our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They, they are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, accessible, and accredited. You can learn more about them at cbtseminary.org. That is cbtseminary.org. Grace and peace. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.